Welcome back to series two of Mud Between Your Toes. In this series, I'm going to let my guests do all the talking. People with a great and often inspirational story to tell, or maybe just something funny. So sit back and enjoy Conversations with Pete Wood. My cousin Mark Olden is a journalist, TV producer, and author of the book, Murder in Notting Hill. I'm talking to Mark today about his latest piece in the Guardian newspaper, which highlights the tragic story of how a person can simply fall through the cracks in the system, even in a first world country. This is Mark's story about how David Blagden spent 34 years in prison. His crime, setting fire to a set of curtains in an Oxfordshire church. So Mark Olden, cousin, welcome back to Conversations with Pete Wood. Thanks, Pete. Great to talk to you again. Mark, I interviewed you in season one about the lives of your mother and father, actors Andrew and Susan Ray. This week, you're here to discuss something slightly more troublesome and paradoxical, and that's the puzzling and appalling story of David Blagden. Yes. Um, <clears throat> David, I, 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 um, I came across the case of David um, back in the late 1990s. Uh, there was a small article in, um, I think it was the Oxford Mail, which I came across initially. And at that point, David had spent more than 20 years or just over 20 years in prison for setting fire to uh, a pair of church curtains when his life was at sort of complete breaking point. Um, and I became um, appalled by the case, as you said, and, and made contact with David. And from there, um, I began to um, <clears throat> understand how this man had, could, could end up in prison for so long. And in fact, as you said, in the end, he spent 34 years in prison for this victimless crime of setting fire to a pair of church curtains in an, in an empty church in Oxfordshire. I mean, it seems almost absurd that Blagden ended up doing two life sentences for what appears to be such a trivial crime. Of course, I'm not condoning arson, but hell's bells. So before we start dissecting the life of David Blagden, tell me, how did you first meet him? Um, and, and what was his physical condition when you first met him? I first met him in, in um, Lindholm Prison, which is in, um, uh, near Doncaster in Yorkshire. Um, and he then was 48 years old and he was older and more anxious than most of the other prisoners and cut a slightly, he cut a different figure to all the others who were hugging their girlfriends and seemed to have families. And um, <clears throat> he had nobody, he, he had both his foster parents had died by that point and he'd had a terrible backstory which we could probably go into um but he was anxious and um he was just really in despair that he'd been in prison for so long and from there i started writing to him and, and carried on visiting him and um carried on writing about his case up until now really I mean, is this simply put the result of a broken home or something psychological or perhaps a system that is simply unable to cope? I think it's all those factors. And 
his case really does highlight multiple failures on the part of all the sort of public bodies who were involved with his story. Um, and I, I can go back and sort of from, in fact, from the moment he was born, you could see lots of failures in the system where, as you said in your introduction, quite rightly, he just seemed to fall through the cracks time and time again. Obviously, David in his own life made a lot of um, wrong decisions just when his case was looking promising, just when things were starting to happen for him, he would often take the wrong turning and sabotage his own case, which was a kind of form of self-harm perhaps. Um, but yes, it, it, his, his case illuminates multiple systemic failures in the prison system in, in the UK, in the probation system, in the care system. And as I said, it started really from day one of his life. Well, absolutely. Tell me about his early life, because by all accounts, um, his mother suffered from mental illness, so, which is why he was fostered. Yeah, he was fostered when he was um, a baby to a family called the Blagdons, and um, <clears throat> they were clearly a very unsuitable family for fostering anybody. Um, and David, in both his psychiatric reports and occasionally, it was a very, very painful thing for him to talk about, but was, was sexually abused by his, his foster mother for between the ages of nine and 14. And his foster mother also took to her bed for, for 18 years. And this is all in the official report. I'm, I mean, she sounds like a head case. Absolutely. She was in her bed for 18 years after, her, after another foster child, um, a, a baby she fostered, died. And David effectively left school at that point to look after her. So they, there's the first point where you can ask, where are the authorities at that point? And at that point also, he started getting into trouble and started building up a criminal record. Mark, you know, wasn't he accused of smothering the child? I mean, I know this accusation is completely groundless because the child died of bronchial pneumonia, but imagine yeah. being eight years old and being accused of smothering your foster brother. Yeah, he wasn't actually accused. He, he seemed to get it in his own mind that he had smothered um, the baby brother, his baby foster brother. But in fact, as you say, it, you know, there was no question of that. In fact, the, the child died of um, bronchial pneumonia. He had a tattoo on his arm, Don, who was the name of, the, of his... Um, of his foster baby brother. So you could see the kind of profound effect that it probably had on him throughout his life. I mean, you mentioned also sexual abuse from the mother. Um, mm. Are these founded on anything concrete? Um, they are founded on the fact that throughout his psychiatric reports, he ref referred to it. So it was something which he consistently said. And um, I mean, he found it very painful to talk about um, clearly and it was something he spoke about very rarely and and sort of got quite emotional when he spoke about it so yeah I mean it sounds it sounds like an awful upbringing I think we need to stay, take a step back a bit and go over some of his misdemeanors and crimes um, I'll be honest he wasn't exactly as pure as the driven snow um, no. I think it's easier if I read from your article because it's uh, there are quite a few misdemeanors okay mm -hmm. so in 1965 age 13 David appeared in court for the first time 
proceeding from juvenile to magistrates and then crown court, from Borstal to prison, picking up convictions for trying to steal from a cigarette machine, stealing money from a handbag, taking a car without consent, assault, blackmail, and possession of an offensive weapon. At 15, he was convicted of indecent assault against two girls of similar age. Now, that's an important one, which we'll get back to later. Then in September 1976, he got two years for arson, released in November 77. In July 78, David then, at the age of 27, appeared at Grantham Magistrates for kicking in a high street shop window and was placed on probation. Soon after that, he made his way to St. Lawrence Church, Oxfordshire. Uh, what happened then? Um, he, he went inside the church and he set fire to two sets of curtains. Then he tried to put some of them out and he went out and sat on the steps of the church quietly and the passerby spotted him and called the police. And when the police arrived, he told them he wanted to be arrested. Uh, his life was really at breaking point at that time. Um, and he just really, his life was so bad outside of prison that he essentially wanted to go back to prison. So from there, um, when it came to his trial for this arson on the church, there was conflicting evidence among the psychi psychiatrists who, eva who had evaluated him. One of them thought he, sh he had um, a mental illness or low-grade schizophrenia, and he did have a history of self-harm. He had a maze of scars in his arms. He tried to jump off a multi-story car park building. He had um, <clears throat> taken overdoses and been sectioned. But two of the other psychiatrists, which would indicate, obviously, that would all indicate he had serious mental health problems, but two of the other psychiatrists um, thought that he didn't have a mental health, but he had this large fund of aggression which um, was either directed at himself or at society. All three of them saw that he proposed some danger, but it was how to treat him, which was the issue. So when it came to his court, his trial at Oxford Crown Court, the judge was in a real quandary because of the conflicting evidence, whether to send him to a high security hospital or to send him to prison. And he suggested adjourning for further medical opinion. Uh, David was having none of it. And he said, let's get it over with. I mean, how extraordinary. It does appear that the judge was tortured by the case. Mm -hmm. um, and he says, you have sustained a great many hardships and you've been deprived of affection when perhaps you needed it most. But my regrettable function at this stage of your life is to protect the public from a person I see as dangerous. Mm -hmm. I impose the sentence that I'm going to with a heavy heart because I personally wish it was otherwise you will go to prison for life. Yet uh, the, the judge had reservations with his sentencing, didn't he? Not long after, he felt compelled to write to the then Home Secretary, Merlin Rees, in a, in a just society, Blagden should not be in prison, but in a secure place where he could be offered and given treatment. Yeah. Would that have made a big difference to his life? It probably would have, but also um, some of these high security hospitals, people can get lost in them as well. But I think, I think it, it definitely, that was another point of intervention where David's path could have been very different.
Indeed. Uh, I mean, Mark, you say you got to know Blagden after you interviewed him in the 1990s, uh, but he actually ended up on your doorstep in Notting Hill a couple of times when he was either out on parole or had absconded from open prison. Um, and he always came with a rather convoluted tale. Tell us about these unannounced visits. Yes. Um, as, as prisoners are moved towards open prison, to, uh, towards the end of their sentences or to prepare them for release, they're often given day release or home leave. And, you know, one of David's fatal flaws was that whenever he was let out of prison in this kind of release, well, not whenever, but frequently, he would run away and disappear. Partly some, probably some kind of self-harm to sabotage his case. And also because he felt the burning injustice that he had been in prison for decades. So the first time it happened um, with me, where he turned up on my doorstep, I was at this dodgy music talent show somehow at How in Essex, and I got all these, a series of missed calls on my phone. Uh, and when I listened to a message, it was David at a phone box in King's Cross, and somehow he'd caught a bus from Derbyshire down to London with six quid in his pocket and turned up. And he, as, as you said, he made up some convoluted story about his wallet being stolen and getting lost. So I sent him around to my neighbours, because I wasn't there, who were luckily very good friends of mine, <laughs> understandable. And he turned up and um, one of them was German and they had some German cousins over and they found themselves in the company of a man who by that point had been in prison for 23 years and, um, you know, and was on the run. So when I, when I got back, uh, we eventually talked, he crashed out on my couch, and then I spoke to his solicitor, Anita Bromley, who was an incredibly, um, incredibly dedicated woman and incredibly good to David over the years. Um, and we found that perhaps the best way we could do it is try to get him back to prison somehow, and then the damage to his case might be limited. So we arranged, I arranged to get him on a train at Euston. Someone was going to pick him up, no stops to Milton Keynes. Supporter was going to pick him up in Milton Keynes, drive him to the prison. In fact, the train, the Virgin train made an unscheduled stop at Watford. David was off on the run for another three days. Um, case got lots of publicity. And there were other occasions when that happened, when he turned up on my doorstep, which probation started getting a little bit worried about me and his lawyer had seen us as sort of... Um, as complicit in his in his case in some ways, but um, uh, you know, as complicit in, in in him running away, which obviously we weren't. But uh, you know, and David was 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 a great character, really. And, and Anita's patience was unbelievable. I remember once when he ran away, and he was caught, and he tried to say that Anita had told him to run away, and said, "Keep your head down, son." Which, if you knew Anita, you know, who's a very well spoken. Um, lady the last thing you can imagine her saying is keep your head down son um but you know yeah that was that was david i mean you've already mentioned this it does seem that he was his own worst enemy in fact mm -hmm. you say the system holds on to people who spend their days in prison railing against sentences they see as grossly unfair essentially what you're saying that under the current uk, UK penal system if you believe you're innocent it's best to shut up. Exactly, because you're supposed to go, you know, there are loads of courses you're supposed to go on, which, which are right for people who have committed horrendous offences, where you're supposed to understand your offence and, uh, and, and uh, to protect the public in future. 
to see see where you're at. But if you if you believe that you're in prison unjustly, then these cases, are, then then all these courses that you're supposed to go on are meaningless, and you don't tick the boxes that you're supposed to to get through the system. And David never ticked those boxes, even though the actual risk he posed w w was extremely minimal. I mean, he never committed another crime since setting fire to the church curtains in 1978 all the times he was out and he had one period when he was out for four years of unbroken freedom he posed no risk and he he committed no further crimes and um wasn't a danger to society but because he couldn't fit into the boxes of the risk assessments that are done by various psych psychologists and probation service you know that always uh, hampered him um, yes, you mentioned this earlier. You say uh, he was nothing like the utterly feckless, dilapidated personality described in official reports, but sociable and resourceful enough to make friends and find supporters around the country to survive on his wits. He did. I mean, he had an amazing ability to find his way around the country with, with, with very little. I mean, there was one occasion that he, he absconded from open prison where he was on the run for eight weeks um, from Bath and somehow ended up in Doncaster working on a building site. Um, and it was only, he handed himself in at the end uh, because he, he, he had ways of coping. I mean, he was a very resourceful and quite resilient guy. I mean, when he was out once, he cycled from John O'Groats to Land's End to raise money for charity. Um, me and Anita always, Anita Bromley, his lawyer, always <laughs> think that it, it, it was it was very suspicious because he suddenly made incredibly rapid progress over the last few days, and uh, we were sure he jumped on a train. But yeah, he he had ways of surviving. He was a very resourceful in individual, and um, the fact that he he survived so long he did after everything that happened to him, and he was quite a cheery, easygoing person in my experience of him, um, with a good sense of humour, talk to anyone. Um, you know, but obviously he was extremely institutionalized and damaged. Absolutely. I mean, he spent he spent time in at least 23 jails yeah. and unsurprisingly came to see prison as a safer place than the outside. He did. I think he did. And obviously, if you spent, you know, um, 34 years in, in prison, that's what you know, that kind of that kind of regime. Um, so again, that's probably another failing that he wasn't, you know, he, was, he wasn't supported enough when he came out. And there was one release where he came out in 2002. Where, well, actually that was when he was finally released before being recalled to prison. But, um, and I think that was also a key point in his story because he came out to great fanfare because at that point he'd said 20, 23 years in prison. There was big media interest in his case. And probation, the probation service kept a very tight rein on him. He was living in a hostel. They were very uneasy about all the publicity. I was at a meeting because he, you know, they were quite uncomfortable. He used to invite me to all those probation meetings, which you can imagine probation didn't particularly like having a journalist sitting in. But that was under the, I, I had to agree not to actually report on the, on the actual meetings, but they were uncomfortable with me being there. But I remember one probation officer complaining to him that he'd been back to the church um, where he'd set the fire, St. Lawrence Church, because of victim issues. He said, well, there were no victims. No one was in the church. 
So there was kind of, you know, their professional orthodoxies couldn't let them see outside the box that, you know, you, in, in their world, you shouldn't visit the scene of the crime. But David had been invited back by the priest. He had been invited back by the church who welcomed him. Um, so, you know, he, probation at that point also failed him as well. Yeah. At, at crucial yeah. point when he'd come out after 23 years. I mean, I want to talk about that. His life sentence expired in 1985, but it was only in 1995, 10 years before he was finally moved to an open prison. I mean, I don't even understand that. How does that work? I think, um, you know, what, what, what's very revealing about David's case and, and, and David's story at that time I didn't know him, but what I, what, I, what I rely on for that is all the psychiatric and prison service reports at that time. And it's, it's really how they are judging him to be at that time. Um, that, he, you know, the, the risk he poses, he clearly did not cope well with prison at that point. He kept being asked to be put on what they call Rule 43, which is for vulnerable prisoners, or actually sometimes it's for sex offenders, who are, who are um, targeted by other prisoners. Um, but he wasn't a sex offender at that. I mean, there, was, that, there wasn't a question. Obviously, there was the thing when he was 15, which we'll talk about. But he wasn't going on Rule 43 because he was a sex offender. He was going on because he was all, uh, bullied by the prisoners and just really couldn't cope with the system. And having nobody on the outside, having no family, and his case was completely forgotten. Nobody knew him at that point, really. Um, it was only later his case gained publicity and, and support. He just managed to get lost in the system. Really. Yeah, I mean, it was through the publicity that uh, public opinion began to swing in his favour. Some of the people instrumental in his arrest had actually changed tack. Chris Moss, the witness who had, who had alerted the police to the fire, now told the Oxford Mail he was disgusted that David was still inside. Um, and the vicar of St. Lawrence, the Reverend John Davis, called David's uh, detention barbaric. Um, and, and in fact, he said, ironically, the pew, which was burned in the fire, was still in use until the other day when it was found to be riddled with woodworm, so they burned it. I said, someone's been in prison for life for that. Exactly. And, and in Oxford... David became a sort of, his case became a kind of cause celeb. Um, you know, he had, he had probably, well, I think there was a petition with 2,000 people to the, to the then Home Secretary, Jack Storr. There was even a petition from pris other prisoners uh, in Bullingdon Jail, where he was briefly. 70 prisoners signed a petition saying, it, saying that he should be released. So by then, there was a lot of momentum behind his case to get him released. Yeah, uh, Mark, I said I'd return to the topic of indecent assault. Something happened that in my mind was incredibly sad. Can you tell us what happened? Yes, um, you referred earlier to the, to the case of um, the indecent assault. That when, he was when he was 15 years old. That's right. Uh, it, it was again, committed against two girls of, of, of a similar age and, and David had no other convictions of this kind. But because of that, he was on the sex offenders register. And part of the conditions, when, you, when you're a life sentence prisoner, you're released under a thing called a license, which means, I think quite rightly, 
considering the seriousness of most of most of the crimes people go to jail for life for, where you can be recalled to prison any time if you breach the terms of your license. Now, part of David's license conditions referred to that crime, that indecent assault, when he was 15. 40 years was, before. 40 years before, July 1966. So when he was released, when he was out in 2009, um, he was living in Oxford. By then he had his own place and he was doing really well. And Anita, his lawyer, was going to get, and the Home Office had, it was going through the process of getting this, one of the conditions of his license related to this indecent assault was that he wasn't allowed um, unsupervised contact with minors. He wasn't allowed to be uh, alone with, with children of under, I assume, 16, I believe. So, but that was about to be dropped because the crime related to something which had happened in July 66, nothing else of the kind had happened since. Um, but it was a condition of his license that he couldn't be with minors. So I remember meeting Anita in a pub in Victoria and David was wearing this garish sort of really over the top tassely white tracksuit, which looked like something that, that Alvis you know, might've rejected for one of his Vegas shows. And this was the last time we ever saw him as a free man, actually. And he said to us um, how important we were in his life. And I remember Anita going, hmm, something's brewing, what's up? You know, she thought it was an ominous sign for some reason, she had a premonition. But anyway, she had a holiday home in Devon and he always loved being by the sea and he'd gone down and done bits of aborted building work for her. And so she gave him the keys to her place in Devon where he could go and stay. And he took a neighbor in Oxford's two boys with him. She, he said she was having a bit of trouble. And you know, I think they're about 11 or 12. He didn't tell probation. He wasn't allowed to take two boys with him then there. He didn't tell Anita. So he was clearly breaching the terms of his license. And when he came back, probation had learned about this. Uh, social services had interviewed the boys. Nothing untoward had happened, but he was recalled to prison. And from there, just that whiff of, be, of, of his previous offence, which people in Oxford didn't really know about, the kind of there was a kind of mood against him, all this online abuse, calling him a paedophile. And he was recalled to prison for breaching the terms of his license, not because, as I say, he did anything untoward to these boys. Um, and from there, once again, he really got lost. He really got lost in the system and spent another nine years in jail. Uh, you, you visited him every year on his birthday, uh, but you said towards the end his physical decline had accelerated. Um, he used a wheelchair, had glaucoma, prostate cancer, breathing difficulties. Um, but here's the paradox, well, one of the many paradoxes in the story. Finally, in May 2018, the parole board directed his release. Uh, but he was stuck in jail for a further nine months. Why was that? It was because of arguments, you know, obviously he was physically declining and he needed uh, a lot of care and that care is costly. And because of all the cuts to the prison service or the local, local authority cuts, no one really wanted to pay for his care. And there were huge arguments over who should pay for it. And in this, David's case is, is really um, 
mirrored by loads of other cases. This is this is very very common now because we've got in the UK uh, an aging prison population. Um, so, so prisons are in some ways becoming care homes because there's nowhere else for these people to go. And even when, as in David's case, people are directed to, to be released, there's nowhere for them to go. Um, and care homes are very expensive. So you've got prison officers becoming carers. You have um, these ancient Victorian prisons which aren't built for people with wheelchairs and um, or, and people with the kind of physical disabilities which David had at that time, ending up as, as, as care homes. So this is, this is something which is happening right now. And David was part of, sort of David's story fitted into this, into this pattern. He did finally get moved to a care home, but his health declined. And in December last year, David died in hospital aged 68. Yeah. David Blagden had been in prison for more than 34 years, on and off, but made it for 34 years or half of his existence after setting fire to a pair of church curtains. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And um, the, the, David had, uh, you know, I'd written about David's case over the years. And when he went back into prison for, for these last nine years, I always said to him, obviously, I, I, I'm transparent about that David became a friend of mine, and you have to be writing about it. But I always said to David, if we, if, to, to tell your story now, we have to go back to, and refer to this conviction of when you were 15, the indecent assault. You have to tell the whole story. You can't leave details, relevant <laughs> details out. So in, in that sense, I didn't write about his story, his case for quite a long time, and it, it probably wouldn't have necessarily helped him. But before he died, when he was at this care home in Somerset for the last few months of his life, where incidentally, he was very, very happy. And I'm very glad that he, he ended up somewhere where he was well cared for in the last few months of his life. But he kept on saying to me, he'd call almost every morning, when are you going to write about my case? I said, David, we've got to tell the whole story if we're going to tell it. And... So, I mean, this article which you're referring to, the one in The Guardian, has been a long time coming because the month before he died, I, I, said, I approached The Guardian and they said, yes, okay, we'll do a long read. And then David died the next month. So, um, and, and just because of the backlog of articles. So this article actually started before he, before he died in December last year. Um, but it's come out, you know, 10 months after, 10 months after his death. And incidentally, what was, you know, quite a poetic thing is that the other day, the church authorities got in touch and we're going to scatter David's ashes at St. Lawrence Church, where he set fire to the curtains. Oh, wow. Obviously, the covered restrictions, we don't know when that will be. But, um, yeah, so, so that's, that, that, that we'll be doing at, at some point. But as you say, it's an extraordinary and very sad story. Yeah, for most of us, this is a story that's hard to get your head around. I mean, Blagden was hardly the model citizen, but who knows what his life would have been like had he received the proper treatment in the beginning. Exactly. Mm. I, I, I totally agree. And, and also, you know, even with the arsons, it's, it's obviously not to excuse them, but there's a lot of these happened at moments of emotional distress. And there's a link, there are psychiatric links between child abuse and arsonists. You know, there's quite a strong link between people who commit arsons and, and their child abuse. So 
lot of what he did was obviously rooted in his very disturbed and wretched childhood. Um, and as I said, since 1978, he never committed any other offences. Well, Mark, we're almost out of time. Thank you for sharing the story. As you know, last week I talked to David Fox about his nine months in a Balinese jail, again, accused for a crime that in many countries would sim simply be seen as a misdemeanor. But I think what is so poignant about Blagden's story is the fact that his misdemeanor or misdemeanors happened in a first world country. I don't know what the message is there. Yes, I mean, and are there other David Blagdens in our in our prisons? Anita, uh, David's lawyer, who who represents has represented hundreds of lifers over the years. I believe over the years it's hundreds of lifers. Um, you know, says yes, there are. That his story might be a very extreme example, but there are many others like it. Mark Alden, thank you for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you very much, Pete. Always and keep, a pleasure. And keep up the good work. Thank you. You too. That's my cousin, Mark Olden, speaking to me from London. And if you want to read the full story or any other of Mark's pieces, you can go to The Guardian online and do a search under Mark Olden. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.